Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So Jim, here we go with minute number 83. We're back in Howard Hughes' office. I uh, I love some someday I want to start a company, and I'm running a little late on my age, but I, I want to start a company just so I can have an office like that with airplanes out my uh, interior window looking over in a courtyard. Isn't that just gorgeous? Yeah. I have a, uh, I have a friend who worked uh, for quite a few years at the Shuttleworth Collection over in the U.K., and uh, she had an interior office that looked out over uh, into the hangar. And they have some of the most amazing collection of airplanes. So she could look out her office window and see what is at the time, still is, uh, but maybe not for much longer, the only flying de Havilland 88 Comet, the bright red 1934 racer uh, that won the McRobertson race. And it's just sitting out there in the hangar. I don't know how you get anything done oh, yeah. staring at something like that. Um, I, I used to, when I worked for British Aerospace, uh, one of the places I worked was at a Harrier plant in Kingston-on-Thames in Surrey. And they used to build the wiring harnesses for the for the Harriers there, and they would put the put the wiring harnesses into the into the Harriers, and then every once in a while they'd have one roll out. <laughs> Everything work would stop, and everybody would look out the window and see this Harrier rolling between the buildings. Oh, cool! So uh, not a not a bad not a bad job. It was uh, a lot more exciting than. Uh, <laughs> I also worked at Radio Shack once, and all I did there was uh, count transistors. So, uh, <laughs> so were you uh, were you involved at all in the battery club at Radio Shack? Oh yes, I had in, a... in, I had inventory of those batteries that people would uh, check out. And uh, really, yeah, and and ha- have arguments with people about why they needed to give me their name and address for each sale <laughs> slip, and oh, they'd God. say just make it out the cash, and you say look. If I don't get 97% compliance, I'm going to get fired, okay? That's why I need, if you ever want to boil it down, why they needed your name and address, because the people were going to get fired if they didn't. I always wondered about that, because that drove me nuts. That was one yeah. of the things that drove me away from Radio Shack. But as a kid, you know, when uh, about the only cards I had in my wallet were the Radio Shack Battery Club and my membership in the Cousteau Society. Oh. I, I still remember my membership number for some reason, 302378G. <laughs> No idea why. And I got to tell uh, Philippe Cousteau that uh, once about 10 years ago. But I digress. The battery club, though, was great because I'm, you know, I'm a kid and I walk into Radio Shack, one battery, please. Yes. <laughs> and they, they, once a month, they have to give you a free battery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, so. it's federal law, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, it was. Used to, and, we used to have and people now, come in and, uh, yeah, now it's all, go find a Radio Shack if you can. There. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, it was good, good times. I learned a lot about what people will buy and what people thought about electronics. So I had a, had a fun time there, but I'm glad I don't work there anymore. I'm um, sorry about what happened to them, but you know, they didn't turn into Best Buy. That was, that was a mistake. It's interesting. So you're saying you left and now, uh, now they're bankrupt and pretty much, uh, pretty much gone. Yeah, that's, I was, I was just holding them up. Mostly it, it's funny. I have a long string of companies that went out of business just after I left. So you, <laughs> you can say I'm, I'm close them down. Jim, I think is my nickname in, in business circles. So you're not just a clerk. You're a load bearing clerk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When I go, I'm the canary in the coal mine. Okay. You see me leaving, <laughs> see leaving. run, run. Yeah. So, uh, oh, well, but, uh, but you know, fortunately but, you, you know, where you've worked previously, Microsoft is still there and <laughs> that's true. Although my division was shut down, ah, so yeah, but uh, the Ellensburg Police Department is still there. 
Oh, okay. So, so they didn't decide to close <laughs> the, uh, close up law enforcement. There's still law and order there. Yeah. So. Well, as much as there ever was. Yeah. Okay. But, well, uh, we, we trust in you keeping EAA running. So yes, keep it absolutely. going. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And you're going to stick it out for at least another uh, what 27 episodes, 26 yeah, episodes yeah, of this yeah, podcast. We, we've got this. We're we've committed. got this ready to retire on. So that that's fine. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I guess we'll just never be be in, at the level of Howard Hughes, but I don't know if I'd wind up in the uh, penthouse of a casino somewhere <laughs> with uh, mason jars. Right. Yes, and long uh, long fingernails and toenails, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. The paneling in this room is sure gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, is isn't it great? Uh, you, ne- you never see like that on HGTV. It just no. they, they don't. I don't think they even sell that kind of paneling anymore. I don't think so. Uh, it's Art Deco wall sconces. And, yeah, and. What's 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 an aircraft company without a good sized fireplace right behind the desk? Exactly. Yeah, it's all he built it all on uh, on basic aviation. So that's where. <laughs> Speaking of which, we we were talking in the last minute. Uh, Howard thought that PV coming up with a rudder to fly through the air was pure genius, but that that really at, in the 1930s rudders were the commonplace, weren't they? Generally, I mean. Oh sure, yeah. The uh, I mean the the basic control system for that we're using in airplanes by that point had been, you can, you can go back sort of as, as far or, or as, uh, as, as recently as you want to from this era and really decide sort of who was, who was behind it. The first person to build a, a flying machine of some kind that we would recognize as having, you know, movable control surfaces, which was sort of a, a movable tailplane, which was both rudder and what we would think of as elevator now. And that was George Cayley. And he was doing that with uh, models in uh, as far back as 1804, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, how much? There's 1849. He built a full-size glider, and to test it, and this was uh, kind of typical of the day. But to test it, you know, he didn't get on and try to fly it. He uh, he found a 10-year-old boy, and then put the <laughs> kid on it, and said, "I'm sure it'll be fine," and you know, and sort of shoved him off a off a hill, and it flew. So, but anyway, Cayley back in 1804, of course, that's, you know, 99 years before the Wright brothers' success at uh, Kitty Hawk. But really, for the Wrights, when they came along, they were at least arguably the first ones to really get that if you're going to move in three dimensions, you need three axes of control. So, of course, rudder is yaw, which uh, moves your the, sort of the nose of the aircraft left and right. You can think of that just like the rudder in a boat, which had been around for hundreds of years at this point. Uh, elevator for pitch, making you go up and down. And then some sort of control uh, for roll. So if you imagine uh, uh, the wings of an airplane dipping left or right. Now the Wrights used wing warping where they actually sort of bent the structure of uh, of their first their 1902 glider uh, in conjunction with rudder and elevator uh, to coordinate uh, the flight of the airplane or excuse me flight of the glider at that point. And then of course in 03 they added an engine to that basic design and made history from there. And what they found was that you've got, uh, you're trying to steer with just rudder, then uh, you get uh, you get into uncoordinated flight. So if you just make these very flat turns, uh, it's very aerodynamically inefficient. It's also very, very uncomfortable for the person, uh, you know, pilot or passengers in an airplane. So you actually want to sort of roll the airplane into a bank and then use rudder and elevator to sort of pull and, and guide it through a turn. So Wrights figured that, that out in 02, used it in their 03 flying machine. But then uh, a few years later in Glen 
Glenn Curtis came along and he started building airplanes. They were going, uh, uh, he was building his Curtis pushers and things starting in about 09. And the Wrights and Curtis uh, started a, you know, sort of a very bitter and acrimonious relationship with a lot of lawsuits and things back and forth and allegations of patent violations. But to get around uh, having to pay to license the patent from the Wrights, Curtis, instead of using uh, wing warping, instead of sort of bending the structure of the airplane to make a turn, he put a hinged surface, uh, sort of cut out a notch on each wing, put a hinge surface in there, which he called an aileron. And uh, that's the control system that we still use to this day, ailerons, elevator, and rudder all working together. Even though uh, we do still see like NASA is kind of experimenting with some wing warping technology and things like this. But generally speaking, when you're flying an airplane, you don't really want to be bending it on purpose. It just never feels like a great idea. Wouldn't you say that things like speed brakes and stuff is a form of wing warping? Sure, yeah. I mean, you can you can make that case. It, I mean, speed brakes tend to be still tend to be an individual panel or sort of like a physically separate surface that will pop up. But you are with with wing warping or excuse me with speed brakes like that with leading edge flaps and and extended Fowler flaps and things like that. You're changing the shape of the wing in a way. I'm just my you know my comments being a little glib as, as they are. We're not actually taking the the physical structure of the airplane and, and yeah, bending, bending it, it yeah. you know so <laughs> yeah i think the passengers would kind of get worried looking at the yeah, exactly why is <laughs> oh. the airplane bent uh, <laughs> yeah. but anyway it's in you know in cliff's case it's funny we we, we have this line here and that ex, uh, helps explain why that beautiful helmet looks the way that it does but as we see when he's flying he's flying in formation with the trimotor and things like this and he's mentioned pv's told him earlier you know look with your eyes. If you turn your head, you'll go that direction. We don't ever really see that illustrated that strongly, but we, we know it's, it's there as, as intent. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed, it's, it's supposed to look that way. So we'll, right. <laughs> I, I think in talking with a couple of, a couple of people who actually fly jetpacks, we found out that the, the Rocketeers set up basically from where his, his thrust comes from and the way he has control services, it would never work in real life. But we don't, we don't have to have it work. It works good enough for a movie. And right. We can, yeah, we can looks, believe in what – PV seems knowledgeable about this stuff, so we can buy in on his – Yeah, it looks ideas. absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. But, yeah, that rudder on the helmet is awfully small, and it's in kind of an odd and awkward place. You tend to have, for the most part, you have better luck with the rudder uh, behind the center of gravity, behind the center of thrust, and things like that. But, but hey, yeah. it looks absolutely perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. No, it's it's fine. It gives us a, a chance to uh, to get Hughes and PV to bond a little bit more, being right. fellow engineers and things like that. So it, it turns out nice and uh, <laughs> just in time for a currently arrested Clifford to to show up. Exactly. We watch we watch Philly. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying Wooly and Fitch. I'm saying, I say you're, you're you're making a bromance <laughs> out of this, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, Fully or witch. Yes. now. Fully or witch. Fitch dumps a Manila envelope full of. The contents of Secord's uh, pockets right. onto the table, just to say these are not uh, rocket parts. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, nothing vacuum all... cleaner shaped has yeah. been found. I love that. As if the Cirrus X3 might possibly be in this Manila envelope. We think it's but been no, bent we... into a mercury dime or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah we do see a, a couple of coins there, don't we? Yeah. See there... the, uh... Oh, go ahead. Oh no! Go ahead. Great, you were saying the coin. The, there's oh, a couple of coins there. So you see, uh, you know what I I thought at first glance was the Walking Liberty half dollar, but it's uh, uh, thanks to a, a tip from uh, well, you. I <laughs> looked again. It's the it's a Standing Liberty quarter, which was in uh, which is minted from 1916 to 1930, and. Uh, uh, that, along with the uh, what they call the Mercury Dime, which we we'll get to in just a second, took the place of a whole series of coins that were just called the Barber coins, which had all been 
all been designed by a man named Barber and been in, in use for, I think, more than 25 years by the time 1916 uh, 16 came along. That Standing Liberty Quarter has, you know, has the figure of Liberty. Obviously, she's standing. She's holding a shield, shield in her left hand, and her she's looking to her left. She's got the olive branch in her right hand, and then on the back is uh, uh, is a nice design. It's an eagle in flight. Still, uh, still see these out there every once in a while, but uh, but they've not been minted since 1930. And then we mentioned the dime. They call it the Mercury dime because it's winged Liberty. It's her head on the face of it. A lot of people would look at that and think, well, okay, somebody with, with wings on a helmet like this, that's got to be the god Mercury, even though there's not really supposed to be any connection there. So that one uh, also started in 1916 and lasted till 1945, designed by a guy named Adolf Weinman, who uh, was a sculptor who did all sorts of things. He's kind of an interesting guy because his work was almost a, a perfect bridge between uh, sort of neoclassical type sort of heroic figures, but also uh, the Art Deco style that came sort of basically right after him or as he was winding down his career. The one piece of his I know I've seen and admired, uh, and he's done a lot of things uh, around the country, but the one that I know I've seen in person is uh, actually, yes, excuse me, I've seen two. He's got there's a, a relief called Drafting the Declaration of the Independence, or excuse me, of Independence, which is on the top sort of, it's on the pediment, I guess is the term of the uh, Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. And then he's got a, a similar uh, relief called Destiny, which is uh, at the National Archives building also in D.C. And it's just, it's beautiful work. And he also did uh, what I thought the other coin was. He did the uh, Walking Liberty Half Dollar, which is just very, very beautiful work. And in fact, was intricate enough that the Mint wasn't sure they'd be able to actually successfully produce it, and they almost gave up. And uh, he has uh, what's what's known as a, uh, on the back of that dime is a... Oh, right. A, a, a familiar, there's a, if you actually want to, in the House of Representatives, there's uh, two of these emblems uh, that surround the uh, Speaker of the House's uh, podium uh, in the House of Representatives, and it's, it's known as a uh, fasces, which... Uh, you know, originally, originally had a very respectable uh, background, but uh, in the 20th century, it kind of changed for the worse. The uh, fasces means a, a bundle, and specifically a bundle of sticks. Uh, from there's a couple of different tales that this comes from, but uh, a- Aesop had one had one discussion about uh, brothers who were fighting, and he the fellow picked up a stick and an individual stick and asked one of the brothers to break it, and he broke it easily. And then he took he wrapped up a bundle of about you know a dozen of them tied them together and said now break it the uh, son couldn't break it and he said so in you know strength in strength of numbers and unity there is a, in unity there is strength and that's that's the original symbol there of in unity there is strength which is a bundle of sticks or fascia in the 20th century of course in in italy and also in germany the idea of a bundle of sticks being you know the, all of the same kind being unity that developed into the uh the political structure of fascism so not a it's it's just one of those uh, one of those things that turned from a virtue into a vice uh, right within within the past century just just like the good luck swastika yeah was uh, was co-opted but interestingly though this symbol didn't seem to it seemed to stand better on its own as you say we still see it in the house of representatives and here on the back of the mercury dime you can you can see it at first glance it almost just looks like a roman column or something but when you do look at it you see there's a it's a bundle of sticks and it's probably presumably like a leather binding or something that holds them together the whole thing of course surrounded by olive branches we always incorporate that symbol of peace into our our currency wherever possible you know you mentioned Aesop's story that also was uh, was used in the uh, in the documentaries uh, series uh, of uh, the planet of the apes and uh, dawn of the planet of the apes uh, the whole uh, apes together strong yep. lesson that uh, that caesar teaches 
And I think that's uh, that's clearly the most important piece of history we could bring out is uh, is the history of Caesar and uh, and the Planet of the Apes. And wow. I'm just going to leave that right there. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> and all this was in uh, in Clifford's pocket, and he barely has enough. Oh, well, he does have enough money to buy some soup and leave a leave a tip for Millie. <laughs> right. Uh, looks like he's got a quarter a dime. Looks like a nickel. Yeah, I'm saying forty cents. So, and there might be something in that pile of keys. Yeah. Which uh, I I was looking in the in the pile of keys for a Ford truck key. I don't see one. It might be underneath some of them, or it could be just a Ford truck that had a starter button instead of a key. That was an option that you could just have a, right. a button and. It was still pretty common at this point, uh, too, yeah. and that truck was a couple of years old. And I would think the same with the motorcycle, presumably no key uh, for yeah. his uh, his late 20s Harley. I guess he just didn't keep it on his keychain. Yeah. And, of course, the uh, the absolutely essential and obligatory Beeman's gum. Yes. Good old Pepsin gum. With a stick missing, which is, I think, the one that he... Or maybe two sticks missing, because he was chewing one for his uh, GB and then one for... Uh, <laughs> for the one that's stuck on the back of the X3 right now. Right. I was trying to figure out where that wallet came from, but it's just too nondescript. Most of the wallet information I've known comes from the Connecticut Leather Company, which used to manufacture, they, they used to get tailings from uh, leather companies to repair shoes. People used to buy shoe, shoe stuff from them. But then they started selling wallets, and then they started selling kits to build wallets. They short, The Connecticut Leather Company shortened their name from uh, Connecticut Leather Company to Coleco, and then went into uh, selling wood-burning kits and leather-making kits, and then they got into electric electronics and who knows what <laughs> it's just one of those things where the name change came from a, a bunch of other a bunch of other things this is this is not a connecticut leather company wallet they weren't making those particular types of wallets at during that day but yeah so if it is a connecticut leather wallet it's it's an anachronism and it is wrapped around a, a you know obviously with uh, cliff's great hair he it's... has to carry his uh his unbreakable uh, <laughs> plastic <laughs> comb, which was, I mean, it's still to this day, that's kind of the standard size. It's like having a big pen. That is that is the standard size for a pocket comb uh, as as it has been for a century. The particular one there, I can't see what the can't see what the handle looks like or the the top part of the the comb. But I would bet cash money that the word unbreakable is written on it. That is a an obvious comb from the Viscaloid Company of Lemonster, Massachusetts. My lovely wife lived in Lemonster many years ago, and she uh, and the, the town was known as Comb City. The Viscaloid Company made combs. The equipment that they used was also made uh, Foster Grant's uh, uh, plastic sunglasses. And later on, the ever-popular 1956, the Pink Flamingo. The Viscaloid Company came up with these unbreakable, pretty pretty darn near unbreakable combs that you could just stuff in your pocket. They sold them in vending machines throughout the country and around the world. They sold them uh, to they sold them to the government. They wound up in GI packages everywhere, care packages and things like that. Everybody had a, vis- a Viscaloid, or uh, as the company that later bought them, Dupont. In 1925, the DuPont-Viscaloid company made this a universal product. It's interesting because I remember even, I mean, I remember as a kid carrying the comb that said Unbreakable on it. And then, you know, every once in a while looking at that and kind of looking around furtively and thinking, you know, is that really true? You know, is this a challenge? (laughs) Can I really do this? Yes. I can't rip uh, a phone book. Maybe I can break a comb. Yeah, exactly. Never had any luck. For those uh, out there that are really interested in combs, there is a comb museum in Homer, Alaska. I've never uh, never made it there. You know, when when I get to Alaska, you can bet that I 
You can bet that I will. Write that um, on the bucket list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine went to a hammer museum in Alaska and, and sent me a postcard from there, which I thought was pretty cool. But I had not heard much about the Comb Museum until recently. There was uh, my wife and I were in the uh, I can't remember the name of the town in North Carolina, but there is just off of I ninety five. There is the Ava Gardner Museum, and that was her hometown. She apparently never came back there, but uh, there were some people there that wanted to start a museum based on Ava Gardner, and they reached out and found a bunch of fans who really loved Ava Gardner and collected her old clothes her uh they bought out dining you know dining room sets from houses she moved out of and, and built this whole museum unauthorized by <laughs> Ava Garner but I guess her family is okay with it now uh just a oh, we spent we spent a lovely afternoon there and I can I can recommend if you're driving through I-90, uh, I-95 in North Carolina and happen by a sign that says Ava Gardner Museum I would really suggest pulling off and going there it's worth seeing this uh, this collection of, of things that you never would have known about Ava Gardner. One, one of the things I learned is she had a 19-inch waist. Wow. I Yeah. <laughs> Looking at, you just look at the dresses, and it's like, how does that happen? But that's just unbelievable. I would guess poverty and corsets, but uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah, quite, a, just... quite a thing to see. Which is your ticket to success, kids, poverty yeah. and corsets. <laughs> yes. Want to make it big in showbiz? Yes, you could be married to Frank Sinatra for a while, uh, and Mickey Rooney too. So, yes, also for a while. <laughs> so uh, somehow, somehow we got to get back to the Rocketeer. So I'm just going to jump back in and say uh, that's quite a collection of things that uh, that the Rocketeer has in his pockets. Yes, it is. Who knew there was so much uh, history there? Also in the uh, in the background here, and you know, a couple of different times through the minute you you look for it, you can see Hughes has uh, uh, beautiful sort of chromed display model of the H1 racer, which is also, you know, the replica of which is sitting right outside his window down in the hangar. I think we see it better toward the end of this minute. So maybe I'm jumping ahead too far. But Whenever I see coins in a pocket, something, a rather, tra- rather tragic thing that I recall reading about gr- growing up, I remember reading the story about uh, there was a, uh, a DC-8 that had crashed in uh, New York. It was uh, bound for, I- well, back at the time, it was called Idlewild Airport. Right. It was, uh, it was a Delta, uh, I'm sorry, United. It collided with a Lockheed uh, Super Constellation over over the skies of New York City. And uh, it was known as the uh, Park Slope uh, plane crash. One of the things I remember about it was that uh, one of the few survivors of it was a little boy. He had survived for a day, I think. He, uh, when the boy died, he had uh, they had emptied his pockets and they found a couple of uh, found a couple of coins that were like sixty five cents in coins or something. And they, the father of the of the little boy who died, gave the money to the hospital where he was um, where he was being treated, and he he died I think a day later. His name was Stephen Baltz. What happened was the uh, the hospital turned that money, the sixty five cents, into a memorial that's inside where it's Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, and you can still go there. There's a little a little plaque, and there's just a little you know, handful of coins that is a memorial to the one hundred and thirty five people that died in that in that crash. I'd never heard that about the coins. I'm familiar with the the, the crash, that DC eight and the Connie collision, and that was the worst. Yeah, I think aviation it was the, disaster up to the up to that point. It was after there was the Grand Canyon midair and uh, about four or five years earlier in 1956 that had nearly as many fatalities and really kickstarted uh, sort of the, uh, a lot of uh, changes to air traffic control and things. But I never knew that about the coins. Yeah, hey, if, uh, I, I would I would strongly recommend if uh, listeners are uh, are interested in, in finding out more about this, uh, just look for Stephen Baltz B A L T Z, the Stephen Baltz Memorial in Brooklyn. It, it inspired a lot of volunteer work in Brooklyn after that happened. So, oh, I'm sure. You know, it's a, a 
terrible tragedy, but some good came out of it in, in helping Methodist uh, Methodist Hospital uh, and, the, and the work that they did, and especially with trauma medicine. So the uh, only other little bit of trivia I know of from that incident was, uh, and this may be apocryphal, but I had read that Edmund Hillary was supposed to be on that flight and was late, huh. or on one of the two flights. I don't know if it was the presumably the DC-8, but didn't show up, and so history oh. history turns out a little bit differently. Yeah. Huh. Well, let, let's get let's get back a little bit further to 1938 again, and we're watching uh, <laughs> sure. uh, Howard Hughes control. You know, <laughs> Howard Hughes can order around FBI agents. I just love that. And you know, we talked a bit uh, yesterday and leading up to this about uh, this whole sequence. You know, could have been prolonged. We could have had. Clifford sweating it out in FBI custody, you know, overnight or something, or being confronted by Hughes and trying to convince him, no, I didn't steal it. I didn't really steal it on purpose, this kind of thing. But as we said yesterday, it's so nice. He gets there. PV's already there. He's he's paved the way. He's smoothed things over. It's okay. You don't need to tell the whole story again. Clifford Howard knows and he believes us. Now let's just give him the rocket and we can all be, you know, all be done with this. I just remember on first viewing thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to be so frustrated because we, the audience, knows Jenny's in trouble and we know the truth about how Cliff got the rocket, but we're going to have to endure this frustration of Hughes not believing him. And then just, no, it's okay. I believe you, but, you know, I need the rocket back, please. The one thing I don't understand, though, is he has the FBI there. He has Howard Hughes there. Right. Why doesn't he believe they can't help him? I mean, I, yeah, maybe it's just he's he's being forthright and he thinks that he has to solve all the world's ills because he's right. a rocketeer. But I, I, I just don't understand if he has all these people, Hughes is on his side at this point. I need right. my rocket back. But remember, you know, he's uh, told, you know, be at the observatory, come alone. You know, they know they've, he knows they've got Jenny and people do tend to want to, it, it, that's the ultimate decision. If And we've, we've talked about kidnapping on this show before, yeah. but uh, that's that ultimate decision you have to make is if they say no cops, do you follow their uh, their wishes or go to the police and and trust them not to be ham-handed and screw it up in this case. And what we will be talking about that he is going to kind of spill the beans to them about, you know, getting his girl. That'll kick off a bunch of other things in effect. Right. All of it is is to serve the plot. So we have to, <laughs> have to keep that in mind. One thing I do wonder is how long do, does Howard Hughes always have a projectionist? <laughs> does that guy show up at 8.30 in the morning and goes home at 5? I'm, I'm going now, Mr. Hughes. Right. Or, Another yeah. day with no movies. Yeah. And then, but yeah, go ahead and roll it. Or, you know, did he have it queued up to to show PV or had he already shown this to PV? Yeah. Did they run it by him again? Did, yeah. What was, did he show it to the FBI guys or who? Right. And how did, I mean, well, we're, we're, that's, that's for another day. Actually, it's probably for tomorrow because we're going to talk about this, this stuff coming up. But yeah, I just, I just wonder what he does. And does he have other movies, you know, run, I like to sing a, uh, or does he like, (laughs) Does he want to, well, you know, does he watch, does he watch uh, Bugs Bunny films? Does he watch, does he have the newsreels brought in? I don't know. He's, he's a multimedia guy. And screen tests with, uh, with, uh, shall we say, uh, buxom starlets. Yeah, it could so be. That was you certainly know, his thing. Designing uh, lingerie and, and undergarments and things, but he's got his fingers in, uh, in RKO or he, he is shortly. I guess he, he is a multimedia guy like, right. you know, like Cliff. He's got his one foot in Hollywood and one foot in, uh, in a cockpit, but we're going to have to leave that for another day as we're going to, we're going to watch a movie next. Exactly. <laughs> and that, that'll be tomorrow. We can, we can talk some more about that. For folks who would like to join us, and I know we've been wide ranging here, so there's a lot of different topics if you want to talk to us about things come back and tell us tell us what we were wrong about uh but you can you can find us on social media all the time at twitter at rocketeer minute you can find us at facebook facebook.com slash rocketeer minute find us on the big site rocketeerminute.com catch up on all the previous episodes buy cool swag from amazon all that kind of stuff if you are in the chicago area on the weekend of uh 
August 25th, 19, uh, 2019, 2017, we are going to be at Movies by Minutes Chicago. Uh, check us out at moviesbyminutes.com slash Chicago, and you can find all the details, get tickets, and come and meet uh, Hal, me, and a bunch of different podcasters all talking about movies way too much. Uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to meet you and, and see you up there. So check us out, uh, Chicago, uh, Saturday, August 26th, 2017. And again, uh, moviesbyminutes.com slash Chicago. That's about it for today. Let's uh, let's have get your popcorn for tomorrow and we're going to watch some movies uh, here on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out. Well, get him, kid.